Good afternoon. Today's scripture reading, the first half comes from uh, Joshua 7, but we've slightly amended what you see here on your worship bulletin. So rather than verses 10 to 12, we're going to read Joshua 7, uh, 1 to 12, and then 19 to 26. So hopefully you can follow along, and I think you'll see why when Anthony reads the Acts 5 passage afterwards. So Joshua 7, 1 to 12, and 19 to 26. Hear the word of the Lord. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent out men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out that region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tents with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. 
Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble upon us? The Lord will bring trouble upon you today. Then all of Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Thanks, Stuart. Good afternoon. In the last couple of sermons, we've talked about Barnabas, uh, particularly the example that he was among the first believers uh, when he sold his property to provide for those in the church who were in need. Well, immediately after this, in the book of Acts, we come to the perplexing story of Ananias and Sapphira which is our passage this afternoon. To understand it, we need to talk today about the church's myth, that is, M-Y-T-H, myth, the church's myth. Sometimes people refer to it as the church's character, or its tone, or its identity, or ethos, But myth, properly understood, captures, I think, something more than that, a sense of a church's shared story. In a book called uh, Beyond the Ordinary, Ben Campbell Johnson describes the idea that we need to wrestle with if we're going to get to grips with this unusual story, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He says a myth lives in every congregation an invisible force that imposes itself on the church's meetings, influences its worship services, and infiltrates the whole life of the community. This invisible power had its birth at the first gathering of the church, and it's been growing ever since. It's drawn its life from the decisions that were made at church meetings, from the voices of leaders and other dominant people in the church through the years, from the blessings and the tragedies through which the church has passed, and from the potent imagination of some of its members. Sometimes leaders in the church have tried to harness the power of this church myth, but often they've simply been its victims. The name that Campbell gives to this force is myth. It's not a word that we're used to using about the church very often, but every church has a myth and lives and ministers in the power of it. Congregations interpret events in their life through this myth, this narrative they've constructed. 
They make strategic decisions according to the values of this mythic account of their life together. The, le the myth legitimates the practices of the congregation. It suggests which forms of ministry are acceptable. It determines for us in the community what it means to be spiritual. Now, claiming so much power for a church's myth may sound strange. Uh, some people define myth so that it, it seems irrelevant. They, they think that myth belongs in the category of fairy tales. But the church's myth is one of the most powerful elements shaping the ministry of any congregation. Either the myth of a congregation supports and empowers the spiritual life of the community, or it resists and confounds it. So let me read you uh, today's passage, which is a story about the creation of just such a myth. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And we'll read through to Acts chapter 5, verse 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together his, with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. That moment she fell down and died at his feet. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Living God, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. Help us, Holy Spirit, to enter into this passage today so that we might know and come to be more like Jesus. Amen. Well, the infamous story of Ananias and Sapphira doesn't, in fact, begin with Ananias and Sapphira. It begins with Barnabas. For those who weren't here three weeks ago when we talked about him, let me just recap a little bit of what we said. Barnabas' real name was Joseph. He was a Jew from Cyprus who was converted by the early preaching of the apostles, perhaps even on Pentecost Day. It was the apostles, the leaders of the Jerusalem church at the time, who nicknamed Joseph Barnabas, which, as the text says, means son of encouragement. And he gets this nickname because we keep seeing him being an encouragement to other believers, to Paul, to the apostles, to the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch. And the first evidence of this is that he sells his property, a farm in Cyprus, and he brings the money to the apostles so that they can give it to anyone in the new community who is in need. Apart from the apostles, Barnabas is the first member of the church named in the book of Acts. And he gets this honor because he typifies what it means to be part of this community. Luke gives us Barnabas as our model of what it means to be part of God's new community. Then Luke tells us about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira are also given to us as examples, but their example is not at all what we're expecting. Up to this point, the apostles and the church have been shining examples, models of faith, prayer, compassion, and in fact, in the chapters which follow, they're going to be that again. But in the midst of all this, Luke tells this very different and very troubling story. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. They decide that they're going to withhold some of the money, but donate the rest to those in the church who are in need. Ananias brings the money to the apostles, but Peter, somehow knowing what's happened, reveals that their actions are sinful. Now, at this point, there's a great opportunity for the story to become an example of forgiveness in the church, an example of forgiveness that might have set the tone for all subsequent generations of the church down the centuries that followed. But instead, Ananias falls down dead. About three hours later, the same events are repeated with Sapphira. She is also confronted with the truth about her sin, and she also falls down dead. And this is not what we're expecting, and it remains very puzzling for many Christians. It seems to me that there are a certain, um, there's a certain amount of confusion as to what exactly Ananias and Sapphira do wrong. They begin well. They're willing to allow their faith to affect their finances. 
They're generous. They sell property to give money to others in need. They're not seeking to control how the money that they give will be spent. Peter points out that the property was theirs to do with as they wished. It wasn't wrong for them to own this extra property. And they weren't compelled as believers to sell it. More than that, Peter points out that the money raised by the sale was theirs to do with as they wished. It wasn't wrong for them to possess this extra money. And they weren't compelled as believers to give it all away. Incidentally, this tells us, as we noted before, that the early church's communalism was voluntary. When you became part of the church, you didn't have to sell everything and put all the money into a common purse. You chose what you were willing at a given time to commit to the church, whether in the form of money, time, or talents. That is still the, the case today. God allows us to choose what we are willing to commit in terms of money and time and talents to the church. So what was it exactly that Ananias and Sapphira did wrong? The key, I think, is in the deliberate link made by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, between this account and the account of Barnabas selling his property, which comes just before it. Uh, this one says, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. If Barnabas is given to us as an example of what it means to be devoted to God's new community, Ananias and Sapphira are given as examples of what God thinks about those who deliberately undermine his new community. To begin with, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not so much greed as it is jealousy. Barnabas' action puts him in the public eye. It gives him visibility and recognition among the new community. He gets a nickname from the apostles. It seems clear that Ananias and Sapphira covet this same reputation. For them, the aim is not to give the best gift they can, but to be seen to give the best gift. Now, sociologists tell us that there's three types of giving. The most common form is what's called social exchange. We give because what we receive back in the form of other people's good opinions is worth as much or more to us than the gift. All giving that's done in public involves some degree of social exchange. A less common but still pretty frequent form of giving is beneficence. Beneficence is the spirit in which we give to those who we perceive as being less fortunate than ourselves. Now clearly that, that can be noble, but it always carries the danger of being patronizing. The least common form of giving is called solidarity. Solidarity is when identification with the person in need is the primary goal. Gifts are put into the control of those who are in need without any strings attached. And the giver seeks to understand that other person's experience so as to join with them in improving their lot. 
This is the real standard of Christian giving that Jesus is pointing to when he says that when we give, uh, our right hand shouldn't know what our left hand is doing. Giving as a privilege rather than for any possible perceived benefit for ourselves. So three kinds of giving then, social exchange, beneficence, solidarity, all good in their own way but different from one another. Ananias and Sapphira's gift doesn't even live up to the spirit of the most basic of these kinds of giving, social exchange. It is social deceit. And this, of course, is the reason that their action is such a significant attack on what it means to be God's new community. There's really two elements to the church's witness in Jerusalem. The preaching of the apostles and the new community's sacrificial support for those in need. And this surreptitious attack on the community threatened to undermine one of these key elements of the church's identity, a key element of the church's myth. Peter goes further. He says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? We need to remember here that Peter knows what he's talking about. On two important occasions, he's experienced Satan getting a foothold in his own life. When he was the first disciple to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus responded by explaining that being the Christ meant suffering and death, Peter rejected his words only for Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan. The temptation to be Christ but not by suffering was a satanic distortion of the truth. And similarly, at the Last Supper, Jesus told Peter that Satan would cause him to deny his allegiance, to deny being a follower of Christ. And so he did, three times before the cockerel crowed. Peter knows what it is for Satan to fill a person's heart. So he reveals to Ananias that he and Sapphira have given Satan a foothold in the community. That this apparently innocuous little deception is in fact a satanic attack on the newborn church. Incidentally, this explains why Peter deals with all of this in public. This is a community issue. It's not a private affair. Normally, uh, we're called to tackle individual sins by talking to that individual directly, one-on-one -on -one and privately. But here, this is a community affair. And this, I suggest to you, is the reason why we're told this story. This account concerns the formation of the church's identity, the church's myth. Now, Luke makes a deliberate link between the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and the sin of Ahan. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Ahan? Thank you. I would have always said Achan, but then I guess that, that was, that's English rather than Hebrew. In Joshua chapter 7, uh, there's another new community of God's people being formed. It's the nation of Israel. After being led out of slavery in Egypt by God under the leadership of Moses, the Israelites are being led into the promised land by God under the leadership of Joshua. 
They conquer various cities as they go, including Jericho. But during the sacking of Jericho, Ahan, a member of the tribe of Judah, keeps back part of the spoils instead of devoting them all to God. Luke tells us that Ananias and Sapphira keep back part of what they declare, using the same word as the Greek Old Testament uses in Joshua chapter 7. There's a profound challenge for all of us here. What are we keeping back that we ought to be giving wholeheartedly to this community? Where are we merely appearing to be committed to those among us who are in need? Well, in the book of Joshua, as the Israelites continue in battle, they're defeated, and they discover that they cannot move forward successfully until this matter is addressed. So Ahan is put to death, and the Israelite community adds the lesson of these events to their growing myth. Again, we're talking here about foundational events in the formation of a new community, early incidents that chart the course for the future. Fundamental elements of any community's myth are established in the earliest days at the hands of the founding members. At the first gathering, they have no history together, no tradition, no myth. But as soon as that founding group of a church begins to take shape, they share dreams and hopes, fears and needs and values, and a community is born. A church's myth gives it its sense of identity. The the myth provides the glue that holds the congregation together. It influences the language habits, style, and practices of the congregation. It gives the church the power to take leaps of faith together. Once the myth is in place, those who enter that church community through the years, whether consciously or unconsciously, are drawn into that myth because it tells them who they are in relation to other church members. It tells them what the community expects of them. The church's story, its its character, its myth, forms the environment that either distorts or uh, nurtures the growth of wholehearted Christ-like disciples. Now, it's easy to see why the things that occur in the life of a church when it's new are so significant to developing its identity. The choice of a location, the selection of a pastor, the struggles to form a community, the influence of founding often very committed people, the ways in which early obstacles are overcome. All of these things are important, but nothing more than the way in which the community sets and enforces standards. In a group that was growing as rapidly as the early church, it was inevitable that Satan was going to find someone through whom to begin to get a foothold in the community and begin to bring distortion. How God would work and how the community would respond to this attack was going to be vital for the church's long-term future. 
Would there be accountability? Would there be the enforcement of certain standards? Because if not, whatever the early idealism about a community that gives sacrificially to any of its members who are in need, whatever their ideals, without accountability, the Christian movement was going to degenerate into something that was no different from the rest of the world. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira stand as a warning at the very beginning of the church's life, indicating to everyone that this is a sanctified company, the company, the people of a holy God. And so Luke ends the account by saying, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This was quite literally a defining moment for the new community. Now, we're all grateful, I'm sure, that the Holy Spirit only chose us to give us this one example of the consequences of deceiving the church. But let's not miss the seriousness of this example. Deceiving the church, appearing to be giving your best while really serving yourself, is lying to the Holy Spirit. It is lying to God. Ananias and Sapphira were put to death by the Lord for deceiving the church. Please don't miss the warning of this story, how seriously the Lord takes this. But don't miss either the invitation, because it's Barnabas' story that is the dominant story here. He and others like him are the people who Luke focuses on in the book of Acts. How can we be like Barnabas, the encourager of others in the church? We should be asking ourselves, where can I bring a word of encouragement this week, even this day? Who do you know in the church who could do with that encouragement? What creative ways can you think of to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in this church? Our myth, our ethos as a church has been and will continue to be shaped both by Barnabas stories and by Ananias and Sapphira stories. If the Ananias and Sapphira stories, instead of coming as occasional warnings, come to dominate our life together, Satan will develop a permanent hold on this church. The myth, the identity of the church will gradually distort, and the church will die. But if Barnabas stories, the, the stories of sacrificial commitment to one another, if they dominate our life together, Satan will be resisted. The myth will gradually deepen and the church will thrive. And that, I'm sure, is what we all pray for and what we all want. So let's pray for that right now. Let's pray together. How will you respond to these two accounts of giving to the church? Let's take a moment in silence just to talk to the Lord.
Lord, your word calls us to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but rather to the interests of others in the fellowship. Lord, by your spirit at work in us, enable us to grow in our commitment to one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.